Hi, I'm Diora, and this is Broccoli Book Club, a socially progressive podcast aimed at analyzing timely and thought-provoking reads. This episode is the author interview, which follows on from the Broccoli Book Club episode on humankind. I'm excited to be joined by writer, journalist, and historian Rutger Bregman. Rutger has published four books on history, philosophy, and economics, including the best-selling Utopia for Realists, in which he attempts to construct a new society without poverty by making a case for basic universal income, open borders, and a 15-hour work week. His work has been featured in the Washington Post, The Guardian, and the BBC. Rutger gained notoriety at the 2019 Davos Summit when he confronted a room full of billionaires about tax avoidance, which turned into a real viral moment and an important discussion point at the time. He then got into a heated debate about tax with Fox News anchor Tucker Carlson, where Rutger was infamously called a moron by the presenter. I couldn't wait to speak to Rutger to get a full understanding of how he developed these radical ideas and why he so strongly believes that people are inherently good. So I think it's really important to make a distinction between human goodness and kindness. So in humankind, I argue that we've evolved to be kind and to be friendly, and that this is our true superpower as a species, that we just want to connect with other people. We basically want to work together. We really don't want to be lonely. I mean, loneliness is lethal to us. It's comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. But that's deep within our DNA, that we just want to connect with others and in that way find meaning in our lives. But kindness is not the same thing as goodness. Actually, in quite a few situations, especially when times get tough, if you want to do the good thing, quite often you need to be unfriendly or unkind. In relatively stable times, a society doesn't really need heroes. Say you live in a stable social democracy, like, I don't know, Sweden or something. Then it's good enough to be just decent, to be just nice and friendly, to just follow your instincts, to do what basically you've evolved to do, to be nice to your friends and co-workers and neighbors, and maybe a little bit distrustful of those who are farther away from you, because that's within human nature as well. You know, this tribal tendency or the, the fact that we're quite groupish. But yeah, to be just decent is good enough. But if the times become more tough, then basically society asks more of us. And then you realize that being an actually good person is very hard. It's very, very hard. My book is really about that. On the one hand, we're one of the friendliest species in the animal kingdom. But on the other hand, we quite often or sometimes do the most terrible things in the name of loyalty or friendship or comradeship. This is the dark side of our nature as well. I took away that you think that thinking positively about humankind can sort of lead to radical changes in our global societies. Um, I just want to know what those radical changes look like to you. Well, here's the exciting thing about being a writer. Stories are never just stories. And ideas are never just ideas. They influence behavior or they can become reality just by you telling that story. In the book, I give the example of Lord of the Flies, you know, the famous novel by William Golding that has had such an incredible influence on, you know, generations of kids who were basically forced to read that book in school and, you know, got a quite cynical view of human nature because of that. 
it has had a major influence. I mean, a whole generation of politicians basically is still in charge with a Lord of the Flies-like view of the world. And that's just the power of a story. And th therefore, I try to show in the book that actually the one time we know of that real kids shipwrecked on a real island, something very different happened. In 1965, six kids from Tonga shipwrecked on an island and uh, survived for 15 months by staying friends. It's the one case in old world history that we know of where we have sort of have the real Lord of the Flies, and it's pretty much the opposite of the fictional one. If you assume that most people deep down are just selfish, then you're going to organize your society around that idea. Your, your workplaces and your schools and the way you do democracy or even your prisons, and it's going to bring out exactly the behavior that you expect. So to give a simple example, if you assume that kids are naturally lazy or selfish or whatever, then how are you going to design your school? Well, you're going to make a boarding school, obviously, because your school has to be a little bit of a prison so that kids can't leave. They have to stay there. There have to be uh, strict rules, a strict hierarchy, competition, etc., etc. And then maybe some learning will happen. If you believe that people are naturally creative and playful and curious, then you can get rid of all, all of that. You know, you can build a school without homework, without these hierarchies, maybe without distinctions between academic levels. And you just mix everything together, all the ages and all the backgrounds. And then you create a trusting environment where people can follow their own curiosity. Yeah. You can look at it uh, yeah, from the I scientific side or your theory of human nature also tends to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, for sure. I definitely see what you're saying. And I think you're right. We are the product of our circumstances. Um, I'm glad you've mentioned actually the Lord of the Flies bit. So when that bit was published from the book, I know there was some criticism in the way that you told the Tongan shipwreck. People were saying that, oh, it's slightly told from a Western or a slight white colonial perspective. And at the time you said that you wish you'd done a better job there. Do you think you learned anything from that experience? And if so, how has that changed your approach to research? Mm -hmm. So... Obviously, I had no idea that this story would go viral in the way that it did. I was told that it was one of the most read articles that The Guardian has ever published. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's had a lot of shares. I see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, like tens of millions of people read it. Yeah. I didn't know. Actually, the day it was published, I didn't know they were going to publish it. And I also didn't know what part they were going to publish. I, you know, I didn't make the excerpt because the, the version in my book is, I think, 6,000 words or something like that. And they published 2,000 words. And I was a little bit unhappy about that as well, because there were some parts, you know, in the whole chapter that were really important to understand the whole story. But they left out. Uh, yes, obviously, it has a Western perspective because I'm from the West. And I was just thinking about... Is there an example in old world history where a real kid shipwrecked on a real island? I was like, yeah, obviously it starts with a white guy because I am a white guy. And then, <laughs> then obviously first one I found was Peter Warner because Peter Warner, the captain, is simply much easier to find. But then after that, obviously he brought me into contact with Mano, his best friend. And uh, everything I write about the story is from Mano, basically, because he was there on the island and he's one of the few people who really know what happened there. Yes, I devote more attention in my book to human nature. So afterwards, I wondered that, especially for the, um, for the excerpt, there should have been more focus on sort of the cultural aspects that helped them to survive. You know, their religion and the fact that they're really from this culture where from a very early age, they learn to live with the sea and how to take care of themselves. There's a lot of this indigenous knowledge that helped them to survive. It's really the question whether, you know, if I would if I would have shipwrecked on an island when I was 15 years old, 
Mm, don't think I would have survived for long, you know? I had highly specialized knowledge of computer games like Red Alert 2 and, and Civilization, but <laughs> I don't think that would have been very helpful. So, Rutger, we've actually got a question from a book club listener. His name is Adrian Thurkel. He says, I'm sitting with two Filipino families who live in plywood shacks, seven children. The men work all the time. The oldest three children, aged six, seven and eight, can't yet write the alphabet. There's no running water and only an open toilet. Because the children don't have birth certificates, they're essentially stateless. It would take a modicum of effort and perhaps an attitude of an open heart for the situation to be remediated. But we've so learned to live with others' precarity, have become so habituated that poverty needlessly persists. How and at what stage in society do we frame our shared existence so that the plight of another human being is felt as our duty to remediate? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. So I've got one chapter in my book about the limits of empathy. A lot of people say that we need more empathy, that we just need to feel for those who are suffering, that we need to try and step into their shoes. The problem with empathy is that it's a very limited emotion, a very limited capacity. It really extends to those who are close to us, who are like us, who are, I don't know, on the television. It helps us to zoom in on a particular kind of person, but it doesn't help us to see most people. So, for example, when we think about what charity we should give money to, we often want to give to a local charity, say to our local church, because that's psychologically rewarding to us. Actually, what would be much more helpful is to take a more rational approach and say, okay, how much good can my dollar do? If I spend, say, $100, I can probably give like two life-saving treatments to someone in a much poorer country. And if I spend it on some kid with cancer here, who's, I mean, that's really, really sad, but that's not going to make much of a difference even though it will give me a great feeling to give that $100 to someone who's visible here. And this is a theme that I come back to again in my book, is that distance is the root of all evil. It's when people become abstract to us, when they are just numbers, then we treat them often in quite horrible ways, or we can be incredibly apathetic. But when we say, oh, a million refugees somewhere far away, we're like, hmm, yeah, hmm. Those are the instances where I would say, come on, make life a little bit more difficult for yourself. Be careful for your own confirmation bias, for your own willingness to feel good about yourself. At the end of the book, you give 10 rules for how to, I guess, be more kind. And most of them do concern the individual. And obviously we've spoken about that already, you know, in terms of how you see radical change in larger society. But I was wondering how you envision like sort of taking these rules and scaling them up, you know, can you scale up this advice or do you really think it does just begin with the individual? Well, there's this long and complicated discussion between on the left on the one hand and people on the right on the other hand about where change really begins. So this definition of neoliberalism, I saw it on Twitter and I really liked it. They said neoliberalism is the idea that you can't change anything except yourself, which is really the problem. So that's really why I'm not I'm not a big fan of the self-help genre, you know, where it's all about, you know, this is how you become more successful. This is learn how to meditate so that you can be more productive, blah, 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 blah. Now, real change often starts at the institutional level. We are products of our institutions, of our schools, of, of how we do democracy, of, of our workplaces. And that's much more important. We shouldn't focus too much on the individual. But then on the other hand, there can sometimes also be a tendency on the left to sort of completely discount the role of the individual. And then it can become a sort of 
indulgence where you say, I'm not going to talk about my carbon footprint. I'm not going to talk about the fact that I'm still eating meat or going on a holiday. I am not going to talk about that because we got to talk about the systems. It's, it's very neoliberal to talk about individuals. We got to talk about the structures, man. Talk about the systems. To me, that feels that this is a way of comforting yourself, right? And, and making life easier for yourself. So the rules for life that I come up with are also quite difficult, but still the right thing. The first and maybe most difficult rule is in doubt, we should assume the best in other people. We assume bad intentions on the other side. I think that's wrong for three reasons. In the first place, you know, it's often empirically wrong. Most people often mean quite well because most people deep down are pretty decent. So statistically, it's just better to assume the best in other people. Even if people don't mean well, your sort of positive response to them can still be very beneficial because it can have this mirror effect. People mirror each other all the time. So someone is basically being a pain in the ass and behaves in a very nasty way. And if you kill them with kindness, then it becomes very hard to stay nasty, right? That's the second reason. The third reason is that even if people really, really, really don't mean well and they just want to con you, they just want to rip you off or something like that, I think you should just accept it that there are a few rotten apples that will never be able to change that. And you'll be ripped off a couple of times in your life. You know, sometimes you'll be the victim of some con artist and just accept it. Because what's the alternative? If you never want to be con, then you need to live your whole life distrusting pretty much everyone around you. These people can do their job, their work, these con artists, because they swim in a sea of trust, because the basic attitude of most people is quite trusting. And that's how they can do their work. So if you've never been conned, I always say that you really got to see a therapist because there's something wrong with you. You know, your basic attitude to life is not trusting enough. Therefore, be proud. If you've ever been conned, if you've been the victim of something, you know, be proud and don't be ashamed of it. So I guess I'd love to know a little bit more about humankind and sort of the process of writing humankind. What's the one thing you learned about yourself in the process of making this book happen? And did you enjoy making this book happen? Hmm. So obviously humankind is a ridiculously ambitious, hubristic book. And I've been working on it for a very long time. Sort of started the real work on it in 2014 or 2015. So Worked on it for about five or six years, but already before that, it was in my head that I wanted to write a big book about human nature because I, I just started to get this feeling that there was a shift happening in science. So many scientists from different disciplines were moving to a more hopeful view of human nature. But then you get started and, you know, you just start to realize at some point, oh, God, this is just so much work. It's so much work. <laughs> uh, because... You know, it had to be obviously an interdisciplinary book and it takes so much work to switch all the time. So, for example, there's one chapter in my book about Easter Island that took probably, I don't know, five or six months to write because it takes a lot of time before you really understand the archaeology and the anthropology and before you know what you can leave out of the chapter and what really needs to be in there and have enough confidence to say that, yes, this is the scientific consensus right now. This is not just, a, I don't know, a fancy study that gets a headline in a newspaper. No, this is really what broadly most scientists would agree with right now. So that was very important to me is that I wanted to write a book that not only people enjoyed, but also, 
you know, experts would broadly agree with. But that just takes so much time. Yeah, and then the years go by, and there's just this also quite frustrating feeling that you haven't finished it yet. You know, maybe you you recognize that feeling from working on an essay or something like that. But just if you have a project this big, you know, it just never stops. It goes on and on. So you go on holidays and you're thinking about it. You go to the toilet and you're thinking about it. You're, you, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're thinking about it. And I'm quite an obsessive perfectionist as well. I do it all the time. I think it's really important that a text always works. So, for example... I have a date with friends to go to the restaurant and then in the toilet, I'm on Google Drive editing my book, (laughs) (laughs) right? Uh, On the telephone uh, while I had just drunk three glasses of wine because I believe that the text should always work. It should always flow, right? If you're tired, if you're well-rested in the morning, in the evening, if you've drank a little bit, if you didn't, if you try the text again and again and again, and it works every time, then at some point, you know, okay, we're there. You know, this is, this is what it should be. The things we write about and the things we care about constantly evolve and our opinions constantly evolve. But if you've written a book, you can't just keep adding chapters to the back of it. So how do you kind of deal with that? What if you change your mind? That's fine as well, right? Well, I did change my mind a couple of times while I was writing this book. I was really lucky that I could publish it at first all the chapters as essays on a journalism platform called The Correspondent, which is based in the Netherlands. So I I write in Dutch and the Netherlands is like my little laboratory for (laughs) testing out ideas. That's how it started. All these chapters start out as essays. I publish them and then, uh, you know, hundreds of people here in the Netherlands read them and I get a lot of feedback. So I basically have uh, hundreds of editors. I really had the benefit of getting a huge amount of feedback from readers. I'm really interested also in your transition from journalist to writing about quite big books on history and humankind. How did that transition happen for you? When I was a a student in high school, I was quite lazy, I would say. In the Netherlands, we have a system of grading. If you get a one, it's like the worst possible grade and a 10 is the best possible I always wanted to get the 5.5 because you just passed. And that for me was the perfect grade. Then you didn't put in too much effort, but still got what you wanted. So uh, I was already very much interested in history back then. But I just had the idea of going on to university, have a good time, drink a lot of beer and maybe become a history teacher or something like that. It was really when I, um, the university, Utrecht University, Utrecht is a city in the center of the Netherlands, a little bit to the south of Amsterdam that I really changed. It's difficult to say what caused it. I would say that it's especially the environment that changed. So people around me, I joined student society, Christian student society. Yeah, I just met a lot of people who were really interested in the bigger questions of life. And I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. So I became incredibly curious and started devouring books and uh, started doing double amount of courses at university, etc, etc. So I don't know, something clicked in my head. I was always walking around with my iPod, uh, listening not to music, but to talks from professors. I couldn't be satisfied. This curiosity was just kept going on and on. So yeah, so how did you go from sort of uni to thinking, oh, yeah, I think I want to be a journalist. And then, you know, at some point deciding I want to write books? Or did you always want to write books? Sometimes it's difficult to say where things start. 
do you have certain ideas or values or things you really care deeply about? And then are you looking for the ways to spread those ideas? Or is it the other way around? Do you just want to be a writer? And you'll see, you know, what you're going to write about after that. To be really honest, I think it was more the latter than the former. Yeah, I, I really, really loved writing. And I was quite obsessed with trying to get published somewhere about something. And obviously, you know, uh, history was my field. So I thought I could do something with that. Now, you got to imagine that this was 2010, 2011. So it was just after the financial crash. And one frustration for me was that back then there were a lot of economists basically explaining what was going on, which felt very weird to me because I was like, but these guys basically caused the mess that we're in, right? Or at least they're implicated in it. So why are we listening to these economists? Why are we not listening to historians? But then I looked at what many historians were doing, and so many of them were so specialized in some small part of history that happened a long time ago and didn't really talk to a general audience. You know, they only talked to some 20 or 30 other historians in the world. I, I really felt that the knowledge of historians wasn't being used, right? And that we could learn so much from them. If you think about the history of financial crises, for example, I mean, these things have happened before. And it really helps to see those comparisons. And so that's how I got started. And that's basically what my first book that's luckily only been published in Dutch because it's not a very good book. But that's basically what it was about. <laughs> is that, come on, we, we got to learn from history. And uh, I just applied basically what I learned over the years before that to a lot of things that were, you know, relevant and in the news back then. So can you tell me two or three books that have shaped your life? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, there was a period in my life when I was, I think, around 18, 19 years old, and I was really thinking about my religion, right? Whether I should believe in God, whether there's life after death and all those questions. You should know my father is a preacher. He's a Protestant preacher. So obviously you grow up in an environment where these questions are important. He's not a very dogmatic kind of person. Not at all, actually, you know, really gave me and my sisters and my mother as well total freedom to basically think whatever he wanted. But as I said, I became a member of a Christian student society. So obviously the questions were important there as well. And when I was around, I think, 19 years old, I became an atheist, which was quite an important moment for me. Back then, there was a book written by a Dutch philosophy professor about why he became an atheist. And I also went to a series of talks by him. And I guess that really made a difference. And I basically gave up on believing in life after death and ultimate meaning. So I've been really influenced by the anthropologist James C. Scott. He, he read a book, Seeing Like a State, that I can really recommend to everyone. And he basically shows that a lot of things go wrong when you look at the world top down and just see a map. It's, it's really a basically a brilliant description of the progress that is also possible, but also of the terrible things that can happen. Another I would name is the anthropologist David Graeber, who passed away, sadly, Very recently, last year, yeah. but has been a huge influence on me. So his book, Depth, The First 5,000 Years, is an incredibly powerful book about depth and money and the history of financial crises. And, but it's basically about what we owe each other and about what human society is. People, people got to read that. He also coined the quite wonderful concept of bullshit jobs. Bullshit jobs, uh, yeah. People who have jobs that don't really add anything of meaning 
or add anything of value to society. And it's not, you know, me or David Graeber saying that. No, it's people themselves saying it, which I think is an incredibly useful concept to understand the modern economy because there are so many bullshit jobs out there. Sure. And um, if you could go back and speak to a younger version of yourself, is there anything you tell yourself? Oh, I'm very embarrassed when I see videos of myself from 10 years ago. Ah, uh, just the pretense, in a way, the arrogance as well, that I oh, just, yeah, you know, and yeah. I had this idea of, I am 23 years old, and I'm going to explain human history to you. <laughs> but probably I'll look at, at myself that way 10 years from now as well. There's an element of fake it till you make it in many successful careers, I think, is that because you just need to practice. And if you want to practice, you need to have the opportunity to practice, right? I really don't believe in talent. It's just, yeah. you've got to practice a lot. And I did get that opportunity because from a relatively young age, I believed I was very good at what I was doing. <laughs> I don't know, that sort of self-confidence that really is the product of a happy childhood. I want to say a huge thanks to Rocker Bregman for coming on this episode. And thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. In next month's book club, we'll be discussing Afropean by Johnny Pitts. So get reading now and just like Adrian, send in your thoughts and comments via voice notes to voicenotes at broccolicontent.com. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag Broccoli Book Club. And if you liked what you heard, why not leave a review on your favorite podcast app? I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at the Diora. Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jaja Mohammed. The assistant producer is Rory Boyle. The executive producer is Rene Richardson. And the sound is mixed by Ben Williams. This is a Broccoli production. <laughs>